Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Zen priest and social visionary Angel Kyoto Williams. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Okay. Um, can I call you Angel? Is that all right? Yes, sure can. All yes. Right. Okay. I'm delighted to, to have you on the other end of the microphone to meet you, so oh, to speak. Uh, Thank you. Um, <laughs> I've been... I should have put a little picture of you across the room here. <laughs> no, I really, I really believe in also, to, you know, in what the human voice can carry, and there's a yeah. there's a real intimacy. I'm sure you probably you've done ISDN before, I assume, this kind of thing without being yes. physically present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yes. there's a special kind of intimacy to it. Yeah, you have to listen. <laughs> yeah, you have to listen. Um, so, Chris, what? I am still hearing. Yeah, you're hearing it too. Uh, I've been, yeah. Uh, Angel, there is one. If you look at where the no, it's not up on top. It's just below the lip of the table. You'll see there's a little knob there. Got it. Less. No, so turn down the volume. I'm. I'll translate yeah. into. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got, I got that. <laughs> I was just making sure my hands were translating that. Yeah, he's usually uh, sensitive to, to to non-technical people, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm pretty technical. Uh, how's that? Um. Okay. So, well, what I was going to say is that I I've been following you and reading you for years, and I'm just so glad that we're finally doing this. So, and I and I'm and I thank now you. My volume is fine. I'm, like likewise. <laughs> Following and listening to you for years, mm. I feel like it's like a very familiar voice in my head. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think we're ready now. Good. So let's just let's just plunge in. Um, I is there anything you want to ask me before we start? Where are you located? Uh, Minnesota. Oh, you're in Minnesota, Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah. Uh, cold. <laughs> it's cold. It's not colder than yeah. Brooklyn, though. You know. I mean, I know you're not in Brooklyn it's anymore. It's true. But at you've... times, at times, I, I was I was in the city just a, a week and a half ago, two weeks, where it was below. Yeah, it was yeah. quite cold in the bomb cyclone or whatever they call that. Oh yeah. So yeah, it it just helps to have a sense of place. Thank yeah. you. Oh okay. Um, yes, it's funny because. Um, um, that's not funny, but it's interesting because I know what, what I want to talk to you about also is kind of this moment we inhabit. And uh, across the years, I've been, I've thought a lot about, you know, how the show would have been different or how, oh, how we might have launched it differently if um, we were on either coast. And since kind of 2016, I'm really grateful to be in the middle mm. of the country. It feels like the right place to be um, for, you know, for this, yeah, in this moment we inhabit. Um, but I do like to get to both coasts <laughs> often. Um, and you're and you're in San Francisco now, right? I am. I'm in the, San Francisco now. I live uh, both in the East Bay and now also straddle New York and Brooklyn again. Oh, all right. Um, so I I'd like to start um, by asking uh, you know this this question I I 
I always ask in some form about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. What I think is interesting about it is that on any given day in our lives, I think we might tell that story differently. And also what I was thinking about as I was preparing to speak with you is that um, the spiritual background of your childhood and the religious background of your childhood can be two completely distinct things. Mm. So yeah. I, so really I'm very uh, open to wherever you would like feel like starting uh, to reflect on that today. Great. I would say that I had no religious life as a child uh, except the life which I would call my spiritual life was a relationship particularly with Jesus Christ through a huge King James version of the Bible, a white one with uh, gold uh, edges on the paper and you know, this debossed with gold. And I had a very distinct relationship with Jesus and um, a kind of affinity for, I guess, what I would now say is his suffering. Um, but no belief. I just was not a child of belief and a sense of trying to believe in anything that I couldn't connect with and touch and uh, you know there were things like the stars that I uh, you know had the sense were, were out there and I could see them but but I was not a, a child of belief and mm -hmm. so my sp spiritual life has always revolved around a sense of relationship to others relationship to a felt sense of who we are in relationship to each other. And I'm sure that that had a lot to do with my own uh, sensitivity and acute sensitivity to my pain as a child. Yeah. Mm. But religion was something that for me was, I was either inserted into it or it was trying to be imposed upon me. It just seemed like a thing that people functioned inside of for this very limited period of time. And they seemed very concerned <laughs> with how they appeared right. inside of those religious contexts. But outside of them, they were entirely different. They could be anyone doing anything. And so... I was quite sensitive hmm. to that uh, dis dis the disparity, the the real uh, disconnect that I saw between who people were in their religious permutations and who they, in, in my mind, who they really were, how they really were. Yeah, that's very. Um, I mean, I think that speaks to also what kind of child you were, right? You're perceptive. You're the what you were observing. Um, the level at which you were observing. And, you know, also, uh, I remember in, in your writing somewhere, you you talk about that Bible. And, uh, I mean, you, you, you were, your mother um, left, and your parents had a divorce when you were quite young. You were very close to your father. There was this moment where you, and I, I think this also gets at um, something that you're also very steeped in now in, in, the, in Buddhist tradition, you know, the, the truth the truth that is told in these uh, teachings and texts that may not be the the um, be the most obvious thing or the most literal thing. I mean, you I remember you talking about 
reading that story of Jesus and feeling forsaken by God, his Father, and identifying with that, with that, mm-hmm. that dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's very striking. Yeah, it really struck me, and it, um, I think it said about this uh, antagonistic relationship with whoever his father was. <laughs> I just thought, yeah, if this, whoever that is, I don't, I don't care how other people are relating to, to him, to that, uh, th- that there, there was uh, the allowance of, you know, his his child to suffer in this way. Uh, which of course resonated with where I was as a child and what I understood about my own life and hadn't yet been able to articulate the sense of betrayal of having adults and the people that are supposed to take care of you forsake you. Yeah. Um, and not having language for that. I, for myself, I could actually see it and resonate with it and connect with it um, and form a relationship and a bond with the witnessing of it outside of myself, even though I don't think I had a clear language for it and a, and a real way to understand what was happening in my own life. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, and you moved, you kind of, <laughs> another thing that's interesting about your story is, you know, you moved between two boroughs of New York City, which to yeah. someone on the outside might seem like a very short distance, um, but it was like going to another planet uh, it sounds like, and um, yeah. So, I mean, is, is that right? Is that you? You were in Queens, is that correct? And then moved to Brooklyn. Yeah, I moved from Queens, and for people that are familiar with New York, they would know that you know Queens is quite uh, even to this day. There's a this the sense of like ethnic difference is is very palpable, yeah. and that there are entire different many countries from neighborhood to neighborhood. And I had the great fortune of growing up in an enclave and a, you know, complex and a development that mashed a lot of those people up together. And so I was exposed quite early to difference and difference was given to me and I understood people as being different. So when I moved to Brooklyn, as I have spoken about before, it was really a shock because mm-hmm. there was a much more there was much more of a sense of like we're all this, mm-hmm. and therefore we should be like this, and difference was frowned upon, or it was something to be um, engaged with it from a perspective of threat rather than right. a perspective of curiosity. So that was that was very uh, challenging for me. And then when I went to live in Manhattan, uh, my schooling was in Chinatown, mm. New York. And so <laughs> I was really truly in a different in a different world in in for great parts of my my life. And then it seems that you were part of um queer culture that was emergent it seems to me that was just coming to have the nuance, really, that the word is is holding fully now, um, kind of er- early on, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and you've said that 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 experience, as much as anything else, paved your way to the Dharma. Um, yes. Yeah. Say something about that. We were we were at the. Um so queer was still a bad word as I grew up, right? It was a it was a word that was taunting. Yeah, it was right. meant to be demoralizing. It was 
on the order of faggot, um, you know, dyke, bull dagger, all of those kinds of things. And so we were right at that moment in which we were choosing to reclaim our sense of identity, including the language that was meant to turn on us. Mm -hmm. And so Queer Nation was an organization or kind of a movement, really, that was coming into being at the time. And it did more than just take the name and the word back. It brought people into an understanding of the, what we now say LGBT, LGBTIQ, all yeah, of the things. Yeah. We saw ourselves, we began to see ourselves as actually um, coming into a unified relationship to our identity as people that were collectively queer, that were marginalized altogether, and that you were gay, meaning a man, or a lesbian, meaning a woman, or any of these other things. Um, in, in fact, even at the time, which I've often said bisexual was not even, um, it wasn't a per permissible right. identity inside of the cluster of being gay or lesbian. We had gay or lesbian and then bisexual was very suspect. Yeah. And so queerness actually opened the doorway to all of us being able to explore our identities and the living in uh, the dichotomy that operated as Either you were heterosexual or you were this other fixed thing, but there wasn't anything in between. And so what we now understand as a much more expansive spectrum of sexual expression, orientation, presentation, uh, performance mm. was opening with that language of, of queerness. And for me, I think that gave me a language and a lens because it was happening at the same time, through which to turn the Dharma over, turn my Buddhist practice over and over, so that it didn't exist for me as a not this, meaning it was just not Christianity. It was not the uh, Baptist church that I was trying to get away. It wasn't solely that. It was all of these other possibilities and permutations that lived on a on a much wider spectrum mm. than I think many of us that have grown up very firmly in some kind of uh, religious orientation. Then we move or convert to Buddhism and it becomes a new fixation. It becomes a new, right. like, I am this now, right. right? I am not heterosexual. I am lesbian. I am not Jewish. I am now Buddhist. And I lived in a fascinating and wonderful, and I would never trade it, time that said there are spectrums, there are permutations, there are aspects of me that I can continue to claim that are clearly of their Christian background and Baptist up, upbringing, um, my Episcopalian time. Like, I can claim all of it, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to uh, diminish any other aspect of my identity. Queerness gave me the language for everything I know about liberation and freedom. Hmm. You, you also, though... Um Moving in that direction and moving into your Zen practice seriously, um, you know, here's one thing you've written that that not too long after your first Zen retreat, you said, I carried my tender grief to the funeral of my relationship um, with my now grown up mm -hmm. friends. So, so what was it 
that also had to die um, for this part of you to come alive? Hmm. Uh, and maybe die me, is too strong a word. I don't know. Sorry. It did, yeah, yeah. It did had to die. Okay. And um, that is very much a part of, it sounds, you know, mystical and mythic, and it's also just true that ways of understanding and attaching, to use a common mm -hmm. term, mm -hmm. to your identity have to give way to something new that emerges so that you can know the difference between what of your understanding of who you are, of your identity, of your orientation, of how you see the world was inherited, expected, foisted upon you, uh, collected in the face of a sense of threat Mm -hmm. and need to belong. And so I needed for some period of time in my life to belong to this uh, fantastic collection of uh, queer black women. Um, and then there became a time that through my practice, I realized that in order to know who I was, that I had to release the tightness of that identity because it, with the sense of belonging, it also came with some expectations about who I could be and who I couldn't be inside of that identity. And so Zen and spiritual practice is ultimately, I think, very much around developing the courage uh, and the heart and the compassion with oneself to be able to shed identities so that you can emerge into a more nuanced understanding of what is at the core of you regardless of these identities mm -hmm. which which seems impossible in some ways right where we're always relative to our time our place you know the the things that we know and don't know mm, but i think the zen practice really encouraged this sense of, and you know, they, we have these koans, yes. and one of the famous koans is, what was your face before your mother was born? And so this is an inquiry, right, and into, like, what is the core of the you, the you, the you, the you, that goes beyond your identity as being queer, as being black, as being a lesbian, as being of this particular era and time. And you have to let things go that you um, kept yourself safe with, kept your identity safe with. I had to let things go in order to come into a more fuller understanding of who I was outside of those identities. And there's something in the, what you just described and the way you described it that points at... Um uh, how your voice in in this moment we now inhabit culturally? Um, I'm very taken with this book that you wrote, actually in 2016, Radical Dharma, which I think was a prescient book. Um, mm. It's it's very much about uh, what we're living through. But you wrote it kind of in the middle of that election year, um, before the ele before that was all done. Um, Looking at our, as you said then, I, and I don't, I, I, I don't, I think there's a there's a clarity there's about this now that there wasn't then about this increasing collective anxiety about mm. transitioning from the first black U.S. president. So focusing on that human 
anxiety that was there and was going to be there, whoever had won the election. Um, you you make this statement that I uh, I find so compelling and stark. Um, and this, you know, I just want to delve into this with you. You say we can't, we cannot have a healed society. We cannot have change. We cannot have justice if we do not reclaim and repair the human spirit. If we don't do inner work, as you say in another place, that has been underemphasized. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is not, we have not trained ourselves to do the work that is upon us now. No, we haven't. Uh, we haven't, and we haven't for, I want to say, uh, in good, good reason from, from a, a, a particular perspective to do our work to uh, come into the deep knowing of who we are is, you know, that, that's, that's the stuff that bringing down systems of oppression is made of. And so uh, capitalism in its current form couldn't survive. Patriarchy couldn't survive. White supremacy couldn't survive if enough of us said about the work of reclaiming the human spirit, which includes reclaiming the sense of humanity of the people that are the current vehicles for those very forms of oppression. Right. That's such a huge statement. It's hard. (laughs) People always always look at me in this uh, slightly hopeful and (laughs) furtive way. (laughs) Right. So let's talk about that for an hour. <laughs> and I mean, I want to, you know, and you've, so also you have lived inside this dynamic. Obviously, you are also a product of this culture, and you, you speak very openly about, about having your angry activist phase, mm. which is more than a phase. I mean, um, an impo- a very important formative part of your life, which is also a formative part of our cultural life um, and and of our cultural impulse to feel discomfort and leap to change and kind of want to mm. leap over that inner work mm-hmm. uh, where anger and healing and these things actually reside. <laughs> It's funny, I was just speaking about that uh, to a friend as I was on the way to have this conversation, Mm. uh, that there is this place of vulnerability from which truly transformative action must come from is what I have discovered and kind of wrapped my whole language and view around is that we can take action and we can take very skillful action. You know, don't get me wrong in any way. There's an enormous amount of advocacy being done, uh, very hard choices that people are making to put themselves on the front lines. Uh, But without this particular place and location of a willingness to be flexible, open, soft-bellied enough to be moved by the truth of the other in whatever given situation, then it is not transformative. It's change, maybe. Mm -hmm. 
It could be moved backwards again, as we can see, the stroke of a pen. But for us to transform as a society, we have to allow ourselves to be transformed as individuals. And for us to be transformed as individuals, we have to allow for the incompleteness of any of our truths and a, uh, a, a real forgiveness for the complexity of human beings and what we're trapped inside of so that we're both able to respond to, you know, the oppression, the, you know, the aggression that we're confronted with, but we're able to do that with a, a deep and abiding sense of, and there are people, human beings, that are at the other end of that baton, that stick, that uh, policy that are also trapped in something. Mm-hmm. They're also trapped in a suffering. And for sure, we can witness that there are ways in which they're benefiting from it. But there's also ways, if one trusts the human heart, that they must be suffering. And holding that in uh, at, the, at the core of any action, of, at the core of who, who you are when responding to things, I think is the, way that, the only way we really have forward to not just replicate systems of oppression for the sake of our own cause. Yeah, which, which means that, that kind of discernment is also about knowing ourselves, uncomfortably mm-hmm. knowing ourselves. Uh, you, well, I, I think it's uncomfortably. Um, it's it's actually uncomfortably unknowing ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it is this willingness to like keep being willing to come undone, to do what we can to understand the world around us and how it, we operate and what is impacting who we are and how we are, and to allow that to keep coming undone. That's what I think is really the, the paradox in the what is possible in from a liberatory standpoint is to be is to recognize like, oh, we're not trying to become something. We're we're trying to un yeah, unbecome. Right. We're trying to undo ourselves. And and that is really what is most challenging for us because we we want to be known to ourselves. We want to be known to others. But the moment we try to do that, we're actually fixating in a way that traps us. So we feel both safe, but it's also confining. So one of the, one of the words you used when you were writing in 2016 about what this moment requires of us is that it calls for pause. And you come from a tradition uh, a, a spiritual tradition, which is a very which which has sitting at its core, mm-hmm. right? And you and you, so we sit and we feel. You're right. I want you to unfold that a little bit um, because just think this thing we're talking about. It's so countercultural. It 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 can mm. so easily sound like this is about not being relevant and not attending to what is urgent. And but sitting as you and what happens in sitting and in pausing um, is not about not acting. <laughs> right. It's a different move. So just just like take us inside that. Yeah, I love that. It's a different. It's a different move. Um, there is so much momentum uh, to every aspect of what drives us, what moves us, what has us hurling through space 
including all of our thoughts and even our own sense of our emotions, how we interpret any given feeling, any experience of discomfort, where that discomfort sits in our bodies. It's not just that we have a feeling of pain or awkwardness. It's that we then interpret that. And those interpretations, much to our chagrin, we come to understand through a process of observing them, are not clean or not uh, free of all of the things that are impacting us outside. And so even our sense of what pains us and what makes us um, feel shame, feel guilt, feel awkwardness, feel put upon by people, feel disempowered, has to do with the external information and cues that we have received. And they're moving at an incredible rate of speed. And for the most part, we almost never get the opportunity to observe them and sort through them, kind of like that drawer that collects everything in your house. (laughs) I have a few of those. Yeah, where you say, oh, but wait a minute. Yeah. Someone lived in this house before me, in essence, and some of that stuff is not mine. Mm. Actually, this is not mine. That's my mom's. This is not mine. That's the inheritance of white supremacy, or that's the inheritance of generations of oppression and marginalization that subjects me to habitually feeling less than even if the current situation it ha- has no intent to make me feel that way. In other words, mm. I'm, I have a default, a tendency towards I- inhabiting this constant experience of questioning myself or feeling diminished by the circumstances that I'm in. And we have no real way of being able to discern what is mine, what is yours, what are we holding collectively, what have I inherited, what have I taken on um, as a measure of protection, of a way to cope at some point in my life or past lives that I no longer need. And sitting lets us begin to do that. It doesn't do it right away because what we first are confronted with is just the assault of the amount of thoughts and the mixed messages that just Mm -hmm. inhabit our body Mm -hmm. and our mind and our experience on an ongoing basis. That when we sit, the first thing we're met with is not quiet or calm or peace. The first thing we're met with is, oh, my God, who is in here? And why won't they shut up? (laughs) How do I get them to stop? And not only is something and someone and everyone speaking to me, it's mixed messages. It, you know, things don't agree with each other. I don't agree with my own truth. I'm having arguments in here that are not my arguments. They're someone else's arguments. They're my parents' arguments. Sitting lets us just, first of all, recognize 
that we are this a massive collection of thoughts and experiences and sensations that are moving at the speed of light and that we never get a chance to just be still and pause and look at them just for what they are. And if we step back and we can see that that is true, it begins to make sense to us, oh, the sense of confusion that I live with, the lack of clarity, the uh, conflict that I inhabit going into any you know, particular situation. It totally makes sense because there's no clear voice in here that I can hear, that I can discern. And sitting, that pause, allows us to begin to, first of all, confront that we, we are not a single existence, that we are a multiplicity of existences all going on at once. And then, slowly, to sort out our own voice from the rest of the thoughts, emotions, interpretations, the habits, the momentums that are just trying to overwhelm us at any given moment. And when I say trying to overwhelm us, that's really a, a key thing to understand because that means that there's an us, there's a right. core and deep right. and abiding us that is being overwhelmed by something that's actually not us. And, that, and, and it's about the, being coming present to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this amazing moment when you're like, oh, I'm not that. I'm not that. Mm. I'm not that negativity. I'm not that uh, constant sense of being small. I'm not that aggression. I'm not the behaviors that I uh, committed in my past. I am, everything is open and available to me to make choices about how it is that I'm going to unfold my life. And you, we wouldn't know that when we're just driven. It's sort of like, you know, there's like 18 people behind you and they've all got a hand on you, pushing you yeah. in the direction of their particular choice. And all you feel is kind of moved. And we mistake that experience as like, oh, but this is me. And it's like, oh, no, that's actually not you. And when you pause, those hands kind of rest or at least we're aware of that pushing, that, you know, that momentum and we, when we become aware of it, we're like, oh, I actually have some choice here. And you, you, are, you are a teacher. You are steeped in this tradition. And yet I also feel that you feel a calling to open the fruits of this tradition. Um, as you say, you've said, you know, Buddhism for you, there's no question that it is a religion. Mm -hmm. But there is also Buddhist psychology. There is also Buddhist philosophy. And these, uh, these, these, these have wisdom to kind of offer up to the world. Um, one of the things, you know, and you, actually your first book was in 2000, and that's also a wonderful book. Um, and it, Being Black, mm -hmm. it's Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness, right? With Fearlessness yes. and Grace. And yeah. Grace, with Fearlessness and Grace. And, and um, Grace. Mm -hmm. um, which was saying what, a lot back then. What? Which was saying? <laughs> which it was yeah. saying? Yeah, it was. A, it was a bold statement. Um, you know, it was. It was something um, really quite challenging in that statement. Uh, uh, 
the living with fearlessness and grace part or being black <laughs> or both? Both. Yeah. Right? That, yeah. that, that we could... Uh, that we could do that, that we could live in, f- for, I mean, in grace. I I just want to say that I think, mm. you know, black America is not mono, non-monolithic as it is, um, has persisted in an amazing grace throughout the history of this yeah. country that is phenomenal, that if any of us were willing to be just a little bit sane... <laughs> And look, we would recognize, like, oh, my goodness, how extraordinary that black people in particular, uh, indigenous people as well, could live the lives of dignity that they have chosen for themselves in the face of the onslaught of what this country's history has been and continues to be uh, and continues to put upon them. So grace, I think, is um, a gift that... Mm. Black peoples have inhabited for a great deal of time. It's such a wonderful though. word to call out, too, as you say. Yeah, yeah. And but fearlessness um, is is the really bold statement because we're expected to not be fearless, and in fact, our fearlessness is dangerous and and threatening. And so, having people of African descent of uh, people that identify as black to choose fearlessness is a very, very (laughs) bold and statement of defiance. And I remember Buddhist teachers being uh, tentatively or sometimes not so tentatively questioning about the idea that in the book I talk about warrior spirit. Yes. And I could see their discomfort with aligning black people with the idea of warriorship. Well, and in your life, this is, I don't want to call it a line that you straddle, but th- but these are, these are identity, you know, being Buddhist and being black, those two things. I mean, you know, I remember you talk about your, your first week-long Zen retreat. There's this love where you say, you, you, there you were walking in circles, staring at a <laughs> gaggle of white people's feet. <laughs> Um, yes, the things that stand out and stay with us. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't even think you wrote that. It wasn't even as a criticism. It was like, well, here's the reality. This is what I'm seeing. Um, yeah. So here is this tradition that has offered so much to 21st century people. It's kind of risen up from thousands of years of cultivating um, cultivating this kind of attention and presence um, and yet, it, this tradition itself has this very contra- which is I should not be surprising. Should it has this very contradiction at its core, in, in its in its American, in its Western uh, manifestation of having been brought to the West, as we say, imported mm-hmm. mostly by young Jewish people and some Christians who were white, mostly. Um, mm-hmm. What you have some very interesting things to say about how that, how also how white culture um, affected, I mean, it's like, for example, the focus on meditation, which is, again, like what the 21st century West knows as a headline um, about about Buddhism, and that this, in fact, is not the primary practice for most of the world's Buddhists, so that it's a non-relational way 
of developing community, which is more has more to say about us than about the ancient tradition. Yeah, I think um, I think two things are happening. I think we are uh, in the West, and yes, primarily white folks, primarily white folks of uh, a level of certain amount of privilege because one would have to be of a certain amount of privilege to go off to Asia and yeah. bring package up, package up te- teachings and bring them back. But also people who had... package up teachers and yes, bring them back. Yes, that's right. But also, you know, when you talk... And I've spoken with, spoken with many of them, these wonderful, these, these kind of mothers and fathers of Western Buddhism, but they, they also will describe this spiritual emptiness that they were uncovering mm-hmm. in what they had that's been right. handed as a life. Sorry, go right. on. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah. So they are of some amount of privilege um, uh, responded to what they needed. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a criticism to say, oh, look, the white people went and, you know, made meditation important when that's not what the rest of the the, the majority of Buddhists are practicing in the world. The, the criticism is not that meditation was made important. The criticism is that because of dominant culture, because of white supremacy, because of the force and momentum of the, 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 the orientation of white, whiteness as a construct to assert itself as the most important thing, that it has therefore made meditation central. It's asserted that meditation be central for all of us. Mm, okay. So it's not inherently bad at all. And, and I benefit from that assertion. So I'm criticizing that. But the, the, the grip on it mm-hmm. and the therefore denial of everything else that might be expressed and generated from these teachings in modern times, in modern society, but through a different cultural lens, are set aside as not the real thing, not the true thing, not yeah. the pure thing. What would you name? Um, what What for you is in that ecosystem of practices and impulses? Um, well, I, you know, I certainly think the chanting practice, right? Mm. And uh, you know, it's been it's well known that uh, Nichiren uh, Buddhism and uh, what most people are have been familiar with if they've heard of black people practicing buddhism they think of tina turner and um and uh uh as as you know chanting namo myo renge kyo and that we talk about buddhism as being largely white and actually there is an enormous number of people of color uh, in the soka gakai uh sect but it's dismissed almost to the point of appearing non-existent in our mainstream, as much as Buddhism could be mainstream, <laughs> magazines and media. Mm-hmm. We almost never talk about Soka Gakkai, about chanting Buddhists. We even call them chanting Buddhists, mm-hmm. right? That's, as if that's yeah, so a pivot off of the, sen- the real thing. <laughs> so we have chanting Buddhists, and, but, which means that by default, the rest of Buddhists are not chanting Buddhists which is absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's the, that's the um, mashup of dominant culture 
doing what it needs to do for itself. That's what people should do. And that's what Buddhism has always made itself available to, is human beings being able to uh, come into contact with the depth of their own suffering and using the teachings in order to be in relationship and find a relationship to that suffering in the way that they know how to do so that they can go forward with a sense of compassion for the, the suffering of others and end of story. And, and so it's been doing that and evolving in all of the cultures it has met with throughout time, th- throughout its existence, since Siddhartha sat under a tree and, and put his finger on the floor and touched the earth and said, mm. I'm my own witness. But what we have now is this mashup into a dominant culture that has incredible um, impact and a spread in terms of its um, ability to affect the the world and how the world understands itself and what's important and what's deemed as um, valuable and therefore mm, not right, valuable. Right. We have this uh, culture asserting that what I need for my suffering, what is best for me, is the, is actually the most true and real thing. And anyone doing something else is not valuable. They're not. Va- they're therefore devalued. It's a it's a capitalist orientation <laughs> to even spirituality. Well. I mean, you can see how that's happened in Christianity as well, right? I mean, it infiltrates yes, absolutely. everything. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we, you know, there's a there's a teacher that talks about, you know, Christianity's um, meeting of capitalism and how that has uh, altered, you know, the depth of the the core teachings. I mean, one of the things that is so useful about 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 this book that you wrote in 2000, um, being black. Is actually something you, 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 it, it, it contains a very, very um, accessible uh, and kind of this, this kind of revelatory, I don't know, like I don't know, rephrasing. I don't know the way you can frame what it was that the Buddhists started to articulate and see after that moment. Um, mm. And the, fir- the first, the first, um, observation being that life is uncomfortable, which is such a simple sentence, and yet it really flies in the face of what American culture so frantically mm. works against all the time. Um, That's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's That's profound right. because it's just, I mean, it's just so stark. You know, one of the things you point out, and if we think again about, you know, how this this wisdom applies to our life together, uh, to human life, not just to Buddhist life, you know this this notion of of like getting present, becoming present to our discomfort, um, and the discomfort of the world around us as the reality we have to grapple with, is that some of us, if we think about the discomfort, and there's so much of this now, right? Mm. There's it's you know I just feel like for myself mm. and so many people, it's just hard. Sometimes hard to get up in the morning and look around. Yeah. Um, and yet, in the face of the the hardest things in our midst that are that we and many of them very old that have been building for a long time, we can't un- not see them now. Mm. Um, some of us still have the capacity to walk away, to turn away, to forego that presence. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I've just been thinking about that, kind of carrying that around. Is, and I think for you, on several of our really hard edges, or I don't know if they're edges, but hard places in our center of gender and race, you know, you've, you've never been able to be that person who could walk away. No, I, I think that what, you know, the idea, people have been trained, right? They have been trained away from their, what we would call basic goodness, the, the natural depth of human beings to be sensitive, to be sensitive to the suffering of others, not just human beings, other species, to be sensitive to the pain of the planet is something that we're trained out of. So we, we, are, we, are, we are moved away from that by, by systems that require us to deny the pain that we feel, to cover it up, to uh, anesthetize it, to, uh, you know, Facebook or tweet it, <laughs> or, yeah. uh, to in some way diminish the, the, the depth of that suffering and the pain so that we don't allow ourselves to be touched by it. And so when you say that people have the capacity to walk away, what I would say is they are, have diminished capacity to feel what they're feeling. And as a result... Right. They, they walk away because they can't withstand, they can't tolerate their own suffering. Mm-hmm. So the walking away is actually a coping mechanism that is the result of not having cultivated a depth and breadth of feeling for what one experiences. And it's understandable that it seems like, why would we want to? Yeah. Because it's overwhelming. This is this inner work that you said that has been underemphasized, oh. and it is, the, it, is, it, is, it is the work we have to do to heal society. That's right. And if we don't do that work, we do get the other end of it, which is this hardening, right? This mm-hmm. shallowness of feeling that allows people to sign on to policies that destroy the lives of other human beings with impunity, that allows people to look for an excuse for yet another person shot in the street and left to die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because the alternative for those people is to feel what they are feeling. And that is overwhelming without a depth of practice Mm -hmm. to be able to allow oneself to both feel that suffering, to feel with it, to let it in and to not be annihilated by it. And so we, we talk about compassion and we talk about feeling and that's the lovely side of it. Um, We don't too, too frequent, less frequently we, we, do we speak about the resistance to that, which is the fear that we will be annihilated, the fear that we will be consumed if we let ourselves know the truth of what it must have been like for our 
grandfathers, great grandfathers, great great grandmothers to have to figure out how to live in the face of human beings being sold mm. like cattle, right? Yeah. What had to have happened to them if we, and then I, I, I pose this question often. I got to a point at which I realized, oh, I don't think those people just came out of the womb inherently evil or mean-spirited for generation after generation. Something had to happen to them. Something had to orient them in such a way that that natural capacity that we have to recognize suffering was diminished. Mm-hmm. And the impact of that diminished ability and to and capacity to receive suffering and to hold it and therefore respond to it has enormous implications and we see them in the society that we live in. Well, right. And I mean, when you say it that way, that that capacity was diminished, it's so easy to look around and see how that happens, that we live in a culture of distraction and, uh, you know, we're constantly being given things to entertain us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're, there's such a, such a um, there's so much that draws us away from that inner work that is, that, that mm-hmm. does, that does, that does require kind of facing discomfort. I mean, I want to also talk to you about love um, <laughs> because, well, well, I want to talk to you about love, but, but also it, it, you know, the the other thing I think about is that we, we're very reactive. We're kind of trained to be reactive and we're, we're rewarded yeah. for being reactive and we reward each other yeah. for being reactive. And that's true on every end of our spectrum. Um, and that's right. I think talking about not just how we how we cope, how we face that discomfort, how we become present, but also how we work with that in a way that is transformative Mm -hmm. uh, is perhaps also something that we have been trained out of. So, I mean, you first got thinking about love with bell hooks. I don't know. How old were you? And you had you already started your Zen practice? Yeah, I just really started practice, and I had all of the, you know, expected, and I would, I want to say, um, reasonable set of relationships to the world around me that, uh, you know, told me who I could and couldn't be as a, a person inhabiting the body of a woman, the body of a mixed-race, black-identified person, the body of a queer person. And so, you know, I was angry and, <laughs> um, you know, thought to hell with them and, you know, had the kind of, like, tightness and reactionary relationship to the world that I, I perceived the world as a place that had to be scanned for threat. Um, yeah. And that I was and that was a reasonable. Threat. That was not unreasonable. Totally reasonable. <laughs> totally, <laughs> yeah. Totally sign of like huge, enormous uh, sign of sanity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and and I say that, and I feel like it's important for people to hear me say that mm-hmm. because I'm not suggesting 
when I expand out what is also possible to coexist with, I'm not suggesting that those kinds of responses to the world that we live in under threat are unreasonable responses. They are signs of health and sanity and one's own um, desire as a human being to survive and to thrive. Yeah. Yeah. And our body, we are equipped for that too, right? Like we, and we are our equipped, bodies yeah. know how to do that. They know how to protect us. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that's why the spiritual a path, right? That that a spiritual that spiritual work or inner work. Uh, if people are uncomfortable with the idea of like it being spiritual, and you know, we have some that it's complex and it's it's you know, know. the yeah. term, but just to do to do inner work, to attend to the inner life. That is why um, it is something that is an add-on, if you will, <laughs> you know, yeah. to to just living um, an ordinary existence because our body will take care of responding to threat. Um, you know, we'll tend to our needs, our urges, um, our our desires, and the the inner work is actually to allow ourselves to. Um, evolve and become more expansive in terms of what is possible for us as human beings beyond mere existence and reaction to our existence. Mm. That's what it um, offers us. That's the promise. That's the thing that people are, you know, reaching for, whether they call it, you know, nirvana or, you know, enlightenment or whatever else one wants to call it. What it's saying is that, oh, we don't have to just be this clod of ailments <laughs> reacting right. to what goes down in the room, trying to figure out, are you food or I'm, am I food? Or, or are you to be pursued and are you prey or my prey, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. without spiritual practice, without inner work, that is what we are left to. Yeah. And that's not, that's not to say that that makes us bad, but spiritual work invites inner work, invites something much more um, nuanced, I think, and, and comprehensive. And I have to say, I mean, I think we forget, uh, but we may be remembering that, you know, the great, the great, not just spiritual geniuses, but social reformers have used this L word, right? Love. Mm. And it was. It was absolutely central to the civil rights movement. Um, and I hear this word surfacing everywhere. And mm. also an attention to how we have to, and I think that's where you were, you know, how we have to revive it, how we have to that's fill true. it with mm-hmm. connotations that take in the complexity of us and the hardness of what's before us. Um, I mean, you've been thinking about this, the role of love in movements, I think, for a couple of decades. And I, I wonder mm-hmm. how your thought on that, also what you see in the world, is evolving right now. Yeah, I think you were pointing towards it. Um, Bell and reading Bell and getting an opportunity to meet Bell also uh, gave me... Uh, a lens into the possibility of love being something that I could, not only could, I want to say, that I had to bring into 
the language of my perception of the world and that love was not to be limited to my bedroom or my family, right? right? Just right. people that I um, thought that I liked, that what I was doing in the past and what we often do and where our culture calls us to do is to use love to be a quantifier of um, do I do I have a preference for you? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's really well do, put. Do yeah. I have? Am I aligned and in agreement and affinity? Are you reflecting back at me what I want to be reflected back at me? Mm. Right. And mm-hmm. if you are, and if you're enhancing my <laughs> idea of myself, then I love you. Mm. And Bell opened up the idea that 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 was a very limited way of understanding, and she still does. So that's a limited way of understanding love. That. Um, the way that I think of love most often these days is that love is space. And love Say some is more space. about that. What do you mean? It is uh, developing our own capacity for spaciousness within ourselves to allow others to be as they are. That that is love. And that doesn't mean that we don't have hopes or wishes that things are changed or shifted, but that to come from a place of love is to be in acceptance of what is even in the face of moving it towards something that is more whole, more just, more spacious for all of us. Hmm. It's bigness, it's um, allowance, it's flexibility, it's saying the thing that we talked about earlier of like, oh, those police officers are trapped inside of a system as well. They are subject to enormous amount of suffering as well. And does that mean that we ignore the significant burden and um, unequal uh, burden that is put upon oppressed peoples? No. But it means that love calls us to include the humanity of everyone, right, that we Mm -hmm. find ourselves in um, conflict with, even even as we um, challenge their behavior, right, seek to alter their policies, to, to move them literally and physically sometimes, to, to actually mm-hmm. move them, that we want to do that from a place that says, I'm not doing this just because my I think my way is the better way. But to the best of my ability, and this is a constant act of one's own work, that I'm, I'm, I'm moving us, hopefully, that movements, hopefully, our movements are about figuring out how do we include more of us more of the time to be more whole and more complete and more uh, in their capacity to love rather than handing off from this side to that side, from left to right or right to left or Democrat to Republican or, you know, that um, ideally our movements... And our great movements have, have in fact, done that. They yeah. have asked of us to not only to shift the conditions for the people that are marginalized, oppressed, left out, um, under-resourced, but it has also asked for the peoples that have been in positions of power or dominance 
to allow themselves to be transformed and moved in such a way that we're now more whole in our human family-ness, that we're now more complete in the way we understand and hold each other. So it's not just a demand that we are able to vote, but that you see the humanity in us, which thereby opens up your own humanity which thereby gives you greater capacity to be whole in who you are. I think that those things are, you know, missed when we sort of shortcut talking about King or we shortcut talking about Gandhi or we shortcut talking about, you know, what Aung San Suu Kyi was doing at some point. We, we leave out the aspects of their underlying motivation for yes. moving things. Um, and we make it about policies and advocacy when really it is about expanding our capacity for love as as a species. Yeah, I, um, I that's so interesting to just focus on that word movement because again, if we just take a reality base, you don't move people by hating them or criticizing them. You, mm-hmm. I mean, and you don't always move people by loving them. But you don't have a chance of doing it, doing right. it with the other tools. But you know, I'm also so thinking so hard at the moment. You're right. Like we don't, we haven't even seen this aspect of that history, even the history that's not so long ago. I think about, you know, a conversation I had with Vincent Harding, who was one of the great, mm. great, mm-hmm. well, you know, in, in my time, one of the great civil rights elders. Um, before he died and him saying, you know, we've, you know, in, when it comes to being a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious democracy, we are a developing nation. We've only been at this 50 years. Um, mm. I sometimes have this feeling that that we are only now growing into, with, with for many reasons, and the, the aspect of consciousness here, what you're talking about, the, the real human work, without which those political changes are fragile. Um, yes. And I think, you know, and I'm talking to you, and I think there are many, many kind of movements, many of them kind of below the radar of what is making news. But, like, you know, Buddhism is, is and what Buddhism has offered up to the 21st century is part of this awakening of consciousness. Mm. Um, which is which we have to have to keep anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think the teachings. You know, the 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 challenge is: can we allow the teachings? I once gave a talk called um, "What We Have to Lose to Save What We Love," and it was a conversation with Buddhists about not being so fixated on being Buddhists. Yeah, that the teachings transcended us in our identity as so-called Buddhists, and that if we really wanted. And if we really want these teachings that are fundamentally teachings of what it means to observe being human and then to respond to that. I think that's what the Buddha did in terms of codifying a set of teachings. He said, oh, this is what it means to be human, that I have to be in relationship with the truth of suffering being part and parcel of what it means to be a human being. And that when I observe that and I accept that truth, when I allow that truth to be real and realized within me, 
that I suffer less, paradoxically. Right. And then I'm compelled out of that to know at my deep, in my core, in my gut, out of my bones, that I don't want anyone else to suffer. And, and that is what we're calling Buddhism. And if we want Buddhist teachings, if we want what Buddhist, those teachings uh, have to offer to do the most work, the broadest amount of work, the most depthful amount of work that they can do in terms of um, impacting our society. I think that we're going to have to let go of being fixated on calling them Buddhist. I think we have to let go of the idea that people need to be Buddhist or that we need to you know, pedal Buddhism or <laughs> any of these things uh, if we want them to return to their rightful place as the, the teachings of what it means to allow ourselves to be fully human. It's interesting you use the phrase, um, I, I'm thinking a lot these days about, because I try to take a long view of time, which I actually think is a real view of time, mm-hmm. um, but it's not news it's you know it's not the way we we work with time right now um and i think about like what what will our age be called so i'm like collecting mm. ideas and mm. you use this language of the great awakening which is interesting because that's also a term in american history for religious um christian particularly like protestant upheavals yeah. um there's a place in and i feel like when you you know, you're, this phrase "radical dharma," radical meaning again, we've kind of we kind of have an imagination about that word meaning extreme, but in fact, it's driving to the core. And you, mm-hmm. you write about dharma, you know, one which is a it seems to me impossible to define, but you you know, universal. What do you say? Universal. <laughs> right. What do you say? Universal. Universal truth. Yeah. And uh, that's why I leave it as a loan word. You know, we yeah. have borrow words when we, are, when we don't have language that's complex enough to make a simple translation. Yeah. And so, I mean, one so place, Dharma is yeah. Yeah, much more complex than merely truth. Right. It's, but that, yeah, that idea of something that is something embedded at the core, some wisdom, some piece of truth, I... There's a place where you talk about how this new, this way you are living, this tradition in this century is very much embracing of other kinds of ancient teachings. Um, Mm. There's a place where you say, you know, like the Dharmic religions, time is held as fundamentally cyclical, but like the Abrahamic religions, also attends to the linear. How how are you? Um, yeah, t- 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 I feel that what you're describing and participating in feels like some kind of evolution. I don't know. I mean, just this is a this is kind of like taking a very wide lens and going to a mm-hmm. big telescopic level, as um, Maria Popova likes to say, um, <laughs> a telescopic lens on the present. But just say a little bit yeah. more about that, because I think that also is calming in its way for us. Uh, we're, we're at this unique time. I'm surprised, actually, that more people aren't talking about it. I think I may have glimpsed an article um, but that I 
disciplined myself to not read. Um, but we are at a time so incredibly unique in human history where there is a meaningful number of us that are not driven by mere survival and we are not defined by the work that we do or the place from which we come. We are able to be transient, we can move around places, we can create meaning um, out of things and ways of being and work that we choose to do and we can recreate it over and over again. We're not defined by where we are or what we do. We can make meaning out of it, but we are not defined by it in a way that former cultures and societies that were limited in transportation um, and had a necessity to... Uh, you know, be able to put food on the table, and so we farmed. And so, you know, we did a, a whole bunch of things that were about fundamental necessities. You just and inherited now, identities from and all kinds of identities. That's, from the, That's exactly right, kin. which is yeah. part of our great yeah. conflict in this country right now, right? We, yeah. we, have, we are running into people, the, the conflict be, between people that inhabit an un, a, an inherited identity with the place that they are, coal mining country, right, mm -hmm. and the work that they do as a result of the place that they are, up against people that have values and ways of perceiving the world that have shifted because they're not yeah. identified by their place and, and the work that they do in the same way way that location and, and uh, a fixed place is, is mm -hmm. tells you who you are and how you be in the world. And that conflict and the values that come from the, those two disparate locations is the conflict that we're, we're up against right now. We in this country, in particular, but also in places, other places over, in the yeah, world, it's global. Yeah. yeah, we are in this amazing um, moment of evolving, where the values of some of us are evolving at rates that are faster than can be taken in and integrated right. for peoples that are um, oriented by by place, right and. And also and, who are and, and the work that they've inherited yeah, as a and who result are in of the, where they are. Who are constantly who are in survival mode. And who are in survival mode right. as a result as right. a result of that. And so our our values and what become what's acceptable to us, enough of us, is shifting at a pace that is just outside of some of our ability to even take in. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem is that, I mean, that's always been true, but the problem is now we have a meaningful number, a sub substantive number of people that have those rapidly evolving values in confrontation with people that are understandably still working with the location survival-based orientation this means a lot of things for us. This means that in terms of values, we can be more spacious, right? There are many of us that can afford, literally, to be okay with people that are really, really different. In fact, we can be curious about it because 
our sense of threat is diminished because our identity is not prescribed by sameness and being a, uh, afforded belonging because of sameness. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It, it's, I, I know you observe this as I do, that um, many of those same people, uh, people who have m- much in common with you and me, I mean, some of the same oppor- opportunities also feel very threatened in this moment. So, so it's hard to rise to that to that calling what what we what we feel threatened by mm-hmm. is the um the pace of our own internal evolution mm. being thwarted because when you're ah. on that journey of like yeah like why should i be worried about whether like chicanos are in this country why should I be concerned about borders why should right like mm. we feel with that the sense of um a belonging to something greater that allows us to make room for a, a, a great deal of difference, and we require it now because it tells us who we are, right? We, mm-hmm. we are actually evolving into difference and the acceptance of more different, new... That's actually part of how we identify, and we feel it as a limitation and as, and as a threat, therefore to have these limitations set on us where we're told, like, you know, this is what dress you can wear, right? This is what bathroom you can go in. This is what border you can and cannot cross. Yeah. Our own identities have evolved in such a way that because we're not merely trying to survive, I'm not saying we're not trying to pay our rent and everything, mm-hmm. but because we're not um, identified with merely trying to survive, our sense of survival, our sense of thriving is embedded in a, a, a sense of movement and spaciousness and, and increasing um, allowance for more and more difference that is in direct conflict with people that are in a space-time continuum that is still place-based, survival-based, get food on the table-based. Mm-hmm. If I don't cut off the, co- the top of this mountain where will I go if those people are not beneath me how will I know my own value etc etc you know I'm you you sometimes do an exercise we did this in your TEDx talk where you where you have you know you've got a room full of people and you just you have them stand up and it's 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 about it's about placing your you know a hand on the side of someone's shoulder and Creating Mm -hmm. pressure and I think feeling embodied, but also feeling the space around you and feeling the other people around. I'm kind of longing, and we and we don't have time to do that, but I'm kind of longing Mm -hmm. for to end with you, um, just offering some ways for people to begin. There's this wonderful notion that runs all the way through your recent writing that you know the world is it for people who are not monastics, the world is our field of practice. So this inner yeah. journey is always intimately connected with the practice, which is all around us. That's right. Yeah. Our teachers, um, as much as we love our embodied teachers that come in flesh and bone and sit on cushions, are really the people, the situations that we confront 
moment to moment, day to day, month to month, year to year, that uh, incite a sense of discomfort, disease, <laughs> awkwardness in us. And rather than seeing those moments as threats to who we are, if we could reorient, if we could center in our relationship to ourselves as evolving, fluid, ever-expansive creatures whose role is to be in observation of what is that? What has that inspired? What has that called forth in me, that discomfort, that is speaking to something that feels solid and fixed and is now challenged in its location. If we could do that, if we could live our lives in a way in which we understand that our deepest learning, our deepest capacity for growth comes not from walling ourselves off from the things that make us feel a sense of threat or discomfort or out of alignment or out of sorts, but rather figuring out what it is speaking to us when we feel those things and what do we have to learn from that teacher that is embodied in that situation, that moment. What is it that we have to learn and where is it that can we expand and grow to include that perspective, that understanding, that awareness? Not so that we become something different than who we are, but that we're evolving into a greater and greater sense of what it means to be fully human, to be radically, completely in the truth of the human experience and all of its complexities. I think that if we can move our work, whatever work we're up to, whatever kind of um, desire that we have for our own development in life, to be willing to face discomfort and receive it as opportunity for growth and expansion and a commentary about what is now more available to us rather than what it is that is limiting us mm. and taking something away from us. That we will, uh, in no time at all, we will be a society that enhances the lives of all our species. We will be in a society that thrives and knows that the planet must thrive with us. We'll be in a society that knows that no one that is suffering uh, serves the greater community and that no one that is suffering is not an indicator of the ways in which the, su the society itself is suffering. I like that faith of in no time at all. In I'm, no time at all. I'm impressed with that. <laughs> <laughs> in no time at all. <laughs> you mean that? I, I really do. I think we have, um, we are evolving at such a place, you know, it's at such a pace, e even what we're experiencing now in our society, we're, we're just cycling through it, you know, we're mm -hmm. digesting mm -hmm. the material of the misalignment 
we're digesting the material of how intolerable it is to be so intolerant. Mm. We're digesting the material of 400, 500 years of historical context that we have decided to leave in behind our heads and we are choosing to turn our sh over our shoulders and say I must face this yeah. because it is intolerable to live in any other way than a way in which that that allows me to be in contact with my full loving human self mm -hmm. you know I felt very I, like you as just because of what I pay attention to as we walk through 2016 I I felt like this human drama is what mm. we have to grapple with when this is over and it doesn't, it's going to be there whoever wins. Um, and then I felt a lot of resistance to that awareness, <laughs> you know, in the, in the, in the last year. Um, yeah. Like everybody kind of, a lot of people, you know, all around kind of digging down into the trenches. But now I'm suddenly feeling like, ah, there's there's some I mean there's something you you said right after the election um, of 2016 I think it was Lions Roar you said I don't have a lot of words but I have a lot of faith I know the road feels low and winding and we seem to need the pain to cut to the core to emerge from the sleepwalk of despair and feel through the numbness of disconnect and indifference but if we let ourselves feel this we will be better for it and I I'm kind of now feeling. Uh, bad about my I'm feeling like I was impatient because this is it's just to let yourself feel is mm -hmm. is hard it's it's a lot to ask and I do kind of feel like like that that is emerging I, I don't know I'm yeah. just wondering if you also have that sense yeah absolutely <laughs> I and and it's and it's part of it right it is part of it it's part of it to go through the fits and you know the denial it's a there's a death right. happening right Right. There is something di dying in our society, in our culture, and there's something dying in us individually. And what is dying, I think, is the, the, the willingness to be in denial. And that yeah. is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The willingness to be in denial is dying in a meaningful number of us, at, you know, the tipping point. Right. It's like it's not it's always been happening. And when it happens in enough of us in a short enough period of time at the same time, then you have a tipping point and the culture begins to shift. And so that there is enough of us that have gone through this pain and fits and, you know, denial and thought like, oh, we could, we can, you know, change the election. Right. Or <laughs> like, or like that's all election. it's about. Yeah. You know, we can change this or we can yeah. change that. We, you know, we did that thing and then we, you know, thought we could just like re resist our way through it. And then the onslaught just, you know, keeps coming. And then we thought like, oh, you know, we it, all of these bits of denial. Right. Yeah. And then what I feel like people are at now is like, no, no, bring it on. I have to face it. Yeah. We yeah. have to face it. We have to face it. I also think what people know is that, you know, short of uh, nuclear war, we'll survive it. Yeah. Well, what a pleasure to speak with you. And this has been such a huge conversation. <laughs> and I, so. I had so many other notes about things we could have talked about. But I, um, <laughs> it's been amazing. So It's so great. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I hope oh, I'll meet you, you in, taking me in on person those places. <laughs> yes, I hope so, too. Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah. yeah. Again, thanks for making time for this. We'll let you know what's happening with it when it's going to air and all that. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah.
Thank you so much. Bye-bye.